Welcome all to the Mandalorian Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for the Outer Rim Territories. My name is Matt, and joining me in the living waters meet the minds of Mandalore is Pete. Hello there, Pete. What up, all my Mandos and Mandettes? The Mandalorian Podcast by Fantastic Geek dons our helmets for Chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore. Pete, we look ahead literally to the future, tomorrow's future, also uh, a, a long time in the future, different galaxy and so forth, when we'll be talking Picard, episode 304, uh, looking forward to talking about that uh, really wonderful episode. Absolutely. It's crazy to think, Matt, that this coming week will be halfway through the third season, the final season of star trek picard but hopefully not for characters contained within but back to star wars matt some legal lightsabers being rattled yes a lawsuit from uh one of the producers was it pete involved with the acolyte who claimed she was let go from that show which meant she couldn't take a previous offer for another show on Apple TV, therefore went from two deals to no deals, all due to, she claims, the machinations of Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy, etc. Yes, uh, Karen McCarthy, who was the Ballers executive producer, uh, let go from uh, The Acolyte, which continues to film, actually um, scouting and ready to film in Portugal, uh, just about now, uh, claims that uh, this was a bad faith and wrongful termination um, and uh, would have earned millions of dollars. I guess time will tell. Um, and obviously no one, I'm not aware of claims that she was fired for, you know, uh, discriminatory reasons and so forth. Beyond that, in, in my my. My quick read is in the high stakes world of Hollywood, um, you know, sign on that dotted line. And before you have signed on that dotted line, your boss can let you go. Um, your boss can let you go, period. Ask Henry Cavill about that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, even if even if there was impropriety, again, of, of any sort on the Lucasfilm end, I mean, good luck suing a major studio without a smoking gun. Um, so I guess we'll... It's like watch this watch this spot for evolution of the story, but um, I I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of just fades away or oh there was a out of court settlement uh, details not disclosed you know dot 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 you'll never hear the particulars again. There seems to be a particular uh, need to slake the thirst for negative stories about Star Wars and Lucasfilm or even to tip stories negatively uh much has been made of the current movie slate or lack thereof um and again it's kind of complicated after you know tying up a nine film saga uh across 42 years you don't want to necessarily rush that and then uh, matt i don't know if you've noticed we've been in a pandemic for three years and the difficulty of, you know, moving things along 
because of the challenges that's posed. Um, famously, Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige has had a Star Wars film in development that Michael Waldron, who's on Loki, who uh, was pulled away from that to write a little movie called Avengers Secret Wars, um, has has talked about, you know, oh, being free of the shackles of a massive film universe as he writes a movie in a massive film universe. But uh, the Fiji film has apparently been shelved. Uh, the Patty Jenkins uh, Rogue Squadron movie was mentioned in the same story as still being in development, but probably not because of her back and forth, uh, you know, with Wonder Woman 3 and then not making that. And, you know, now, hey, I'm available. Uh, and also Taika Waititi's uh, Star Wars film, which it's now revealed uh, he's going to play uh, some sort of large role, if not the lead in that film. I agree that that's what the article said. I'm somewhat dubious as to the Taika Waititi movie being made. I really suspect that um, the same Disney bosses, uh, Bob Iger in particular, who've made comments like, you know, Marvel really needs to look at whether a part three or a part four is worth uh, being made, particularly with older characters. I think some of that is shade towards Thor Love and Thunder and kind of like, I don't know, we shot like a six hour take and Taika Waititi is just a silly guy and does what he wants because Oscar and funny and this and that the other. I think I, th I would propose, Pete, that maybe in Hollywood, the Taika Waititi brand is waning a bit and fine that movie still might be in development pete all sorts of things are in development for all sorts of you know endless time and so forth i would bet that that one doesn't get made either clearly whether it was the old Iger era the bob chapek era quick as it was or you know bob Iger phase two um it seems that there's a lot of disney curation into what is the next Star Wars movie experience going to be? And there's a lot of trepidation about making it, you know, about making a bad experience. I think that the tales of where Han Solo, where the Solo film went wrong, um, and though Bob Iger took a victory lap for all three of the sequel films, uh, Rise of Skywalker included, I think that they took notice that movies are supposed to get bigger as you get to part two and part three, not go in reverse. So I think that there's a lot of furrowing of brows when it comes to what Disney wants to get out of Star Wars, what Star Wars can do best. And even as their streamer slimmed down for everything else that we talk about, Star Trek and Marvel on TV, and even maybe Marvel movies, not streamer slimmed down, but maybe it's like, let's, let's not do four a year, let's do three a year. Let's make sure it's quality, not quantity. Star Wars on TV is not having that discussion. Star Wars on TV is the thing that's swooping in to save the day on Disney+. Plus. Um, so I say hold off on a movie until you know you have it right, even though, Pete, I think that uh, I think that this season and into the summer and maybe even into the fall, we may be seeing elements of the next Star Wars movie, uh, even as we podcast today. Buried in that story was the detail that Ahsoka will probably begin to stream late summer. 
Um, and I don't know, think they were. This was clearly an article where they'd spoken to Disney people on the records, gotten yeah. some background off the record. I read that, and fair's fair, Pete. You brought it to my attention. Screenshot circled. Uh, quote and so forth. You screenshot it, Matt, because it might go away from the story. Yeah. I think that's one of those things where it was like, oh, crud, I know we talked about that. I know we talked about that during the we can talk on background, unattributed, and so forth, but crud, I didn't mean to, I I didn't mean to say that because we wanted to be in control of our own, you know, PR cycle and all of that. Um, But that was a good, that was a good catch on your part to see it, to highlight it to screenshot it uh, and so forth yeah and we will link that story uh into the post with the podcast here um but the idea <clears throat> of course we we're going to see ahsoka this year but you know we've mentioned marvel before and of course podcasting in the mcu as well you know the streamer slowdown is not just a star wars thing it's everything and of course the Disney idea where last year, Matt, we had Obi-Wan and Ms. Marvel overlapping. That's probably never going to happen again. And you've referred to these, you know, tentpole streamers as e-tickets. Uh, yeah, you're not going to have Secret Invasion and Ahsoka at the same time. Uh, Pete, I think at some point, at some point, maybe we'll do a standalone podcast uh, on the pop culture podcast feed or Patreon or whatever, I think to sit and kind of step back and say, this is what the modern landscape of streaming looks like for Marvel, for Star Trek, for Star Wars and so forth. But I would certainly agree. Like how many, how many top tier shows are on HBO right now in terms of being brand new? It's the one everybody does the one. Maybe you do too, but it's not like meant to crisscross. I.e., fair's fair. Paramount Plus has nineteen twenty three, the Yellowstone thing, which I think is a completely different audience than, let's say, Star Trek Picard. I think there's meant to be overlap between Marvel and Star Wars, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to have both of those shows going at the same time, like clearly, Kenobi is bigger than Ms. Marvel. I think you want to say, oh, it was the, it was the the, the the infancy days when they didn't know to do that. No, I think they were just throwing a whole bunch of stuff and seeing what stuck. Um, and in that case, it didn't work because I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think Ms. Marvel had the kind of cultural penetration that maybe it could have if it was the only thing going on at Disney Plus at that time. But uh, they get paid the big bucks to make those uh, decisions, I suppose. And we get paid the slightly less big bucks to podcast them. Speaking of podcast, Matt, next week, Mandalorian episode 303, chapter 19, rumored to be 56 minutes long. That's height, not length, right? Pete, listen, I spoke with somebody uh, who knew the length of the first episode before it aired. I mean, that was kind of out there rumored. Um, and was like, I'm not even going to watch the first week. I'm going to wait until I can do because because 30 whatever 33 minutes that's unacceptably short. I'm going to wait until week two so I can have a proper sit down. Pete, oh I assume that that same person uh, and anybody who was upset about the first episode being as long as Favreau and company wanted it to be to tell the story of Chapter 17. Um, I'm assuming that the same people will be upset that this episode is 
too big and maybe they'll have to say i'll watch it on wednesday and thursday to separate it out because apparently if it's not exactly 45 minutes long then that is bad versus i think there's things in this week's episode where you say oh that's why we had uh sullen bo-katan briefly in the last episode it was to set up the next episode because the stories are interconnected but also have a defined episodic beginning and end point i'm sorry some people don't like to have fun well pete with that let's hit the hunt on tatooine fireworks pop and crowds cheer as speeders race through the streets a colorfully dressed Rodian gesticulates, and Pelimato doesn't know what to tell him about the missing parts of his speeder. She threatens to push him back on the street, but he begs her, implores her to fix it, which she will, though she doesn't appreciate his tone of voice. She says business is slow, but... Uh, she has to order the parts from the mid-rim and estimates she can have him running in two months' time. He exclaims, and she tells him to settle his snout because she'll put a rush on it, but he's got to give her half up front for parts. Hands over the credits and claims uh, she should charge him more considering she's now got to work boon to Eve and had big holiday plans. The Rodian leaves and R5D4 rolls in. Uh, Peli tells him to tell the Jawas the Rodian left, and they re-enter, decked out for the holiday, with the parts they stripped off his speeder. Pete, I understand from the internets that there is some... Uh... Look, I'm a little confused sometimes as to what's canonical and what isn't for Star Wars, but apparently Palpatine banned pod racing. And I know that this is obviously taking place six or seven years after the fall of Palpatine, but part of the enthusiasm of this Bunta Eve racing is because racing is back in the post-Palpatine world. They don't know that Palpatine will come back in the sequel trilogy, but I digress. Uh, Wonderful setting of the table here. Then look up in the sky it is uh, Mando's iconic silver uh, customized N1 Starfighter. Uh, he notes that it is uh, super fast, too, almost too much speed for him to know what to do with, which has me wondering, is that like a setup for later? Or is that just acknowledging that, you know, this uh, th- this kitty does purr real fast? Like a nuzzle shrew. Indeed. Uh, Peli is asking, where's uh, where's Grogu? Then Grogu is there. Grogu jumps. Pete, some people astonished. Where did he get the ability to jump? Why <laughs> did you give him a secret jump history in another show called The Book of Boba Fett? Um, yes, he jumps now. Um, Peli also, you know, Mando is there ostensibly to get the uh, IG memory circuit there. Pelly says that this droid side quest is boring, the, the droid part quest. Uh, I agree, too. Um, that was my passive complaint last week. Um, interesting that she gives the hard no. You're not getting an IG memory circuit. Let's ask the Jawas. Pete, when you get a Jawa to say no to some parts, I feel like that's as hard a no as you can get in the world of uh, gray market tech dealing. Um, and no Pelly... chance cubes on Boon to Eve. 
indeed deep cuts here. Uh, Pete, as is, you know, Pelly offering up R5, I needed to, uh, at this point, um, explain to my wife and daughter the, the storied history of R5, the droid who almost was, but then was not, you know, on account of his bad motivator and all that. And uh, never before told that he bought alongside the rebellion, we only see him al- almost being R2-D2. Uh, but that, I thought that, that was kind of some fanciful backstory on Pelly's part. I think that he he could have been the most important, uh, you know, um, astromech droid in the entire rebellion. Instead, he blew a motivator and now has just you know coasted around here for the last what eight nine years. Well, the characterization certainly tracks in that you know. I need a droid. Help me to uh, go spelunking here. Check the atmosphere on Mandalore. Uh, and first he backs away, and then she calls him Scaredy Droid. Built for adventure, uh, she claims, uh, but no room for him in the ship here. Uh, she promises she's going to give him the holiday half price and throw in a free oil bath so that after the suns go down here, loading him into the ship, uh, just as the canopy's closing, she says uh, not to rely on him too much because his circuitry is a little fragile. Wait, I thought you said he was built for adventure. I can't hear you. A uh, great moment as the ship takes off amidst the Buta Eve fireworks. Pete, this footage from the trailer. But wait, I thought that that was going to be climax of story footage. Now I don't know what to predict. Um, we get the title card here, chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore, uh, and then uh, approaching uh, an ominous planet. It is, of course, Mandalore. Uh, we are told, uh, we the audience, we, we the kind of group grogu here are told that it was beautiful once homeworld of their people that's right both dinjarin uh, and grogu it's their people pete the inclusivity a creed not a race and all of that mando uh, says he grew up on concordia look there it is over there also here it is in the map by the way uh useless bit of info until later here on the map this one over here that's Kalevala, where Bo-Katan was last time. That's right. If you point to it on the map here, that's Kalevala. Everybody at home got that? Grogu, you got that? Uh, classic Mandalorian low-key, just setting up for the future. That does not feel like foreshadowing. Just feels like a thing you would say, and later it's the most important bit of information when it's needed most. Right, you know, because Mandalorians need to understand maps so they never get lost. And so we question, is the Mandalorian Dinjarin or is it increasingly Grogu? The ship enters stormy clouds and R5 reacts in terror, but the rain gives way to a brighter, albeit decimated, surface seems the fusion bombs from the purge have disrupted the magnetic field around the planet and they will not be able to communicate with anyone out of the atmosphere so they'll need to be careful they land on the craggy and glittering green glass din tells r5 to scout ahead but he doesn't want to 
tells him to take an air sample from the ruins below through a split in the rock. R5 rolls over, uh, but he's all worried there. Something's going to happen to him. Din tells Grogu the droid will be fine. He turns his head back around and Din tells R5 not to be a baby. Get those samples they need and hurry up. Once out of sight, they watch R5 on the scope where his beeping dot soon disappears. I was rather convinced that um, the story was prepared to sacrifice up R5 um, in that the starfighter does not need an astromech droid to fly. I mean, obviously it will as the story unfolds, but at this point in the story uh, with no knowledge of what's ahead, um, you know, R5, okay, cool connection to, you know, the first film and all of that. I was just convinced it was going to be like, you know, and then the mangled frame comes out or we never see him again or that sort of thing. So kudos on, uh, you know, going different than my expectations and kudos to the story for, um, I think ultimately preserving R5 as a character, even though I think for a lot of people, if he was destroyed and gone with, it wouldn't be like, no, you took away my childhood R5. Right. Um, so what this creates here, they had the interference. So uh, Grogu convinces Din to go retrieve the droid, uh, which he was hoping to avoid going out there, but he'll pressurize his helmet Matt, because he can do that um, and has Grogu seal himself in his pod. Hissing like an underwater diver, he exits and tells Grogu not to worry that he'll be right back as he enters the cave and looks down over the ruins of Sundari, just as he's attacked by a trio of humanoids brandishing weapons and ignites the dark saber, which he still struggles to wield. He stabs one with a vibro blade, pushes one off the ledge, and impales the other before it falls over and finds R5 knocked over. And they go back to the ship where he has the droid check the toxic- toxicity of the atmosphere. The charts were wrong. Indeed, a very clean atmosphere. Uh, now, in the first of a series of back and forth trips now complete we're going to do many more back and forth backs and forth sisters. uh r5 is going to stay um and again with the knowledge of we need r5 there to fly it in a little bit and so forth it's just that again kind of the the minimalist story way that favreau and company move all these elements around regardless r5 is going to stay put grogu via his pod will join mando they go again to the cliff's edge, and this time they descend down, down, down. Um, really, you know, in retrospect, I know that we've seen Grogu in a floating pod since literally his his first moment on screen, but the ability to give a floaty thing uh, to be alongside a character who has a jetpack, and I know Mando didn't have it initially, but the notion of floating pod plus guy in jetpack means they can always traverse the the environments easily again i think it's one of those story decisions you make ahead of time to leave open story choices for later on such as this descent um going through the remnants of the city center here 
um, back into the the people in my notes called the creepy caves um, when all of a sudden Mando is scooped up by you know ultimately what we can what we will see is kind of the the spider type um, droid there but kind of some Venus fly action Venus fly trap action there as Mando gets pulled away we do see that organic eye on the inside uh, as Mando is indeed taken deeper baited with a distinct t-shape visor of a helmet in the dirt picking that up before it's a trap this i thought it was more crab-like than spider-like uh droid jabs din in the neck with a needle and grogu hides from it watching as it walks away but keeping within sight of it uh with din stuck inside hazily looking out grogu sneaks up as the cage is mounted and the uh droid with that organic eye component uh that exits out a top hatch looking like a better version of the mimics from edge of tomorrow (laughs) uh you say metal cage i say metal spider cocoon i think we can both be right here um we see that mando's uh you know his various belt goodies i'm talking his gun the dark saber and so forth are taken away and discarded uh ultimately as grogu tiptoes in mando tells him to go get help from bo katan um grogu gets uh an electric zap sent towards him he jumps that's right pete secret jump history activated again goes into the pod back he goes then pete we have a delightful portion of what may turn into a ride one day called grogu's mineshaft <laughs> adventure you know uh the the snow white ride isn't gonna last forever at a certain point you reskin that bad boy grogu's mineshaft adventure uh with i robot and uh hissing you know cat lizard and so forth um he goes up 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 he's stopped at the mouth of the cave by one of those cave apes that will be properly named later and because we saw it in the preview it maybe is a little less powerful but still Mm -hmm. a brief moment uh, as the cave ape gets force blasted away hooray uh grogu jumps into the uh the starfighter brief bit of business where you know a space bat is against it but quickly they take off and uh no no harm no foul there nobody chewing on those power lines and so forth uh as r5 still there still there to fly i see what you did moving r5 into there to fly uh both of them off yes grogu pointing of course to kalavala where bo droid alerts her to an unscheduled visitor and she watches from the window before telling him she's going to get rid of Din once and for all. The ship lands and she greets it saying perhaps she didn't make herself clear the last time that she wants to be left alone. But when the canopy opens, it's just Grogu. And she asks what happened to Din. She tells her droid to download R5 and find out where they were. Her ship leaves and heads to Mandalore with Grogu and R5 inside, clearing the storms, turning over the destroyed dome of Sundari, which she tells Grogu didn't always look like that. She puts down and asks him if he can guide her to Din. 
She heads out with her helmet on, and R5 scomps in to watch from the cockpit. As they enter the cave, she removes her helmet to explain it was once a beautiful civilization. Her family ruled, but now it's a tomb. They descend and pass those pipe predators. Bo tells Grogu she knows he's frightened, but she needs him to guide her to Din. Grogu activates his light and leads the way as she activates hers. She tells him she knew quite a few Jedi. It's really kind of underselling it. <laughs> she doesn't know what they taught him about Mandalorians, but there was a time where they actually got along quite well, fighting side by side. She asks Grogu how good he is with the Force since he got back to her all alone. Uh, R5, anybody? Pete, it's classic misappreciation, underappreciation of the droid work force in the Star Wars universe. Um, you had mentioned uh, a scene or two earlier how she took her helmet off to uh, to note how her family used to rule this all. Uh, classic, you know, remind me of all those classic Marvel moments where nanite helmets come off so actors can have close-ups. <laughs> Similarly here, Pete, you might have thought that it was just some fantastic stunt performer doing all of these scenes. No, no, no. Um, it's actually Katie Sackhoff. I know because she took her helmet off to have a close-up. Um, she, as they're making their journey here, uh, I, I like that she can read the environment uh, due to her experience and so forth uh, better than uh, Din Djarin did, kind of seeing the, you know, kind of appeared to be a semi-transparent, you know, whether it was a, a cocoon or a pod or just a higher layer and you're, you're whatever you're seeing the the uh soon to be properly named alamites there she starts blasting preemptively uh great fight scene there um also pete i think doing double duty in terms of reminding the audience as to her ability to fight and uh take care of herself and all of that um but indeed all those alamites now uh taken care of she notes that they used to live in the wastes all the way past the edge of the city and so forth. If they have survived, what else has survived? Which uh, did not jump out at me as foreshadowing at the time, but is going to be used in a little bit. Pete, this an incredibly compact episode, despite its slightly longer runtime, and you know, not one that feels necessarily like a you know, this is not we're trapped in the cargo bay and it's that compact, but all the pieces setting up future pieces. He didn't think his dad was the only Mandalorian, did he? Din's captor drains him, hooked up to some sort of pump, and rolls him on his side. Bo-Katan enters, guns ablazing, and the captor hits her with electricity from his staff three times before she starts to crawl towards the dark saber uh, that had been taken away and uses her grappling hook to grab it, blocking another blast with it. She activates her shield again as well and easily impales the captor, uh, thus uh, ending the cycle of live, die, repeat. Uh, as 
she asks Din if he's okay, the head breaks off of the previous form and scuttles away with the eye visible in it. And Din ever so weakly alerts her to the bigger crab spider droid there that she expertly uses the dark saber to take down not heavy for her again you know we long-term star wars fans know why uh but sliding underneath in particular to uh cut it down and again this scene i mean it's her second fighting scene so you see she can fight very well um so much of this show is uh kind of visual in nature it's you know we all know favreau is a director and a writer so other shows i think would have the dialogue scene where she would say i am familiar with fighting with that i am better fighting with that instead we just show um no need for the dialogue at least right now maybe next week there's discussion on how she has a history with it how she is better with it how she's not having these problems you know etc etc um, but to see it in action here where it really is an expert uh, taking a part of the spider droid um, and, you know, courtesy of her skills and all of that. Uh, we have a passage of time and Mando is on the mend as uh, Bo-Katan is making some soup. It's Pog soup. What? Mando doesn't know what that is. The irony that he is so into Mandalorian culture, you know, maybe trying to save himself in this extreme uh, you know, his extreme uh, version of Mandalorian culture, but still doesn't know what Pog Soup is. With that, you ready to head up to the ship? No, says Mando. We need to head down to those living waters. Fine, fine, fine. I roll. She will take him. Yes, she knows the creed, the words. She said them once, you know, placate the masses, the dum-dums who believe in things like mythosaurs and the prophecies and the so on and so forth. It's just bread and circuses, she's implying. Uh, they approach the area of the mine. No, 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 don't go in yet. She needs to read from the plaque here, uh, which again is coming off as slightly sarcastic. You want the whole tour here. Uh, and the whole recap, coincidentally, about how the first Mandalore tamed that mythic, mythic mythosaur that is complete myth and just complete fake story time. And from that, we got the skull signet. Okay, now you can go bathe in the water that's just water and has nothing special in it. Do want to point out the mention of her father, who has never been glimpsed in animated Star Wars or even discussed that he defended Mandalore and then, you know, a look at Grogu. Uh, what did, what are you looking at? Almost as if he might know some more given that he may have known several of the Jedi that, uh, she had interacted with before, uh, that, and also, uh, her detail earlier about how she thinks it's adorable. He believes these stories, which I think is definitely going to be something we talk about in theories. But uh, the water sloshing in those living waters, um, the pieces of uh, Din's outfit that he does not need. He doesn't need his blasters. Right now, he takes off the um, the jetpack as he's getting ready to go in. 
and the discussion, you know, the mention of the mythosaur and then the skull signet that became the symbol of their planet that of course first glimpsed on the armor of Boba Fett. Um, and she asks Din if he's all right as he removes those parts reciting the creed and entering the waters dropping down as he finishes. And uh, Bo quickly jumps after him. She's able to use her jetpack. He, of course, had taken it off, which, again, is another kind of handy... Like, we're watching it going, well, well, yes, in your, you know, John the Baptist moment here, indeed, you're going to take some stuff off. I guess that makes sense. But you're Mandalorian, so you don't take off your helmet. Like, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, but, of course, it's critical to the story that um, he doesn't have the jetpack, which I would assume also works underwater. She goes after him, down, 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 into the the muddy depths there and i'm kind of as i'm watching it i'm saying okay i get it we're being artistic here not only is it you know not super well lit because it's deep in the this cave water but there's all this silt here but why why are you obscuring my view on my big tv in what the fire stick tells me i'm watching in in dolby vision and so forth Uh, ultimately she finds him pulls him up um but gasp through the silty view is that uh, a mythosaur that they pass on the way up you know we we see it kind of close up at first of course Pete I know it is but in the reveal of it um, and then they come shooting out uh, landing rather hard uh, both panting and gasping uh, at which point I was ready for the next scene but it was time to take us to the credits Let's chase down some theories. So the mythosaur, Matt, and, you know, while I didn't attend the two-episode premiere in Los Angeles, uh, an image of the eye made the rounds. We had a lot of discussion, a lot of front-loading of the mythosaur. It's mentioned by Queel in the pilot when Din Djarin is learning to ride the blurg. Oh, you are the Mandalore. Your people rode the mythic mythosaur back a long time ago. And then, of course, in the previously on segment, the armorer had mentioned it as well. You know, the songs from Aeon's past. Um, But now that we've seen one that's never been pictured live action or animated what this can all mean here we have a dark saber we have this now legendary beast clearly from bo reaction here near disbelief i i think din hasn't fully glimpsed it you know he kind of takes a back seat in this episode what being cast captured and then rescued um and the question for me too is like all right what now where's this episode open next week did you see what i saw what this all means what do we do with it well first and foremost i think it is so impressive that disney actually went out and got a real mythosaur to film for this (laughs) i mean you you talk about the scale of this production (laughs) (laughs) um but a bit more seriously, what 
what struck me is, um, you know, there were, you think back to season two where the quest at the beginning of the season seemed fairly linear and then the complaint from some, certainly not us, was they keep getting sidetracked by stuff. Yeah, they keep getting sidetracked for wonderful episodes like the, you know, the the ice cave and, and all of that. Um, but kind of, you gave me A to B, and along the way we go A, H, Z, K, then B. All right. In thinking of this season, okay, I need to go bathe in the waters and be redeemed. I'm like, no problem. Episode 7 or episode 8, he's redeemed, and he's able to rejoin his family, uh, extreme as their views may be, but his his covert, his style of uh, Mandalorian doctrine and so forth. And now, obviously with other uh, irons in the fire and other things to worry about, here he is bathed and he's one quick, you know, TikTok vid away from going to see the armor and saying, look, now I'm pure again. Um, and again, I'm not actually surprised that the story is taking twists and turns beyond that. But I am rather surprised that since we had the need to purify yourself reintroduced last week, now he's purified again this week. Um, again, subverting expectations. There we go. Check that one off the list. I'm only two episodes in. So what struck me in particular on top of the mention of the Mythosaur in the previously on was the image of the armorer opening up the little vial and pouring that into the vat that she cools the best car off in and the discussion of the living waters almost like, hey, I got a little living water that I dunk in here to do this and notice how it you know, makes the the regular water here almost like what's done in India. You know, they will bottle the uh, religiously significant rivers uh, into amulets and even at times drink that water as, you know, dirty as it may appear um, for the potential of healing properties of you know, the significance of those sacred waters. So, you know, again, Mythosaur now cited, myth made real, okay? And, you know, I, I'm sure we're all anxious to see just how big is this Mythosaur that, that Disney has found and included in this production. Um, and where we go from here. So Din Djarin has the Darksaber. He has the thing that can unite Mandalorians to follow behind him, uh, at least the ones that were following Bo-Katan. Uh, the watch people might be super interested to know, can he prove that uh, they have seen and there exists currently a mythosaur? If only he could have both and get the mythosaur to them on the rock croc world they live and maybe the story is already seeded away that that can happen uh pete what what giant creatures could transport another giant creature such a long distance because isn't rock croc world surely it's far from concordia from the mandalore system and so forth yeah so the purgle that Grogu saw 
in hyperspace that we think Din may have been asleep for because uh, his head kind of tilted and then Grogu climbs back and up under his arms adorably. Uh, but, you know, in animation, they have grabbed onto ships and then their tentacles pulse and they go to hyperspace. Uh, that'd be one way to go. Also would be a gigantic ship. I don't know. That pirate ship looked really big, Matt. Maybe it could have a hold that had a mythosaur in it. Um, I, I think he's going to try to find a way to wrangle this thing and, and ride it. Uh, you know, clearly it's not going to be a picks or it didn't happen situation. Um, concerning proof of his having bathed, I mean, I, I would, I would propose that, um, though I'm not aware of any sort of, uh, heaven help us, Pete, any sort of, you know, Mandalorian helmet, Twitch live stream type situation, I would just story-wise, if he needs proof, I don't think it's going to be like, oh, wait, well, I didn't get proof. So now let's go back and let's do a 38th trip up and down the cave and down the, like, it'll just be you know for there is footage in my helmet which i will now play or that that sort of thing i don't think that the story is gonna i don't think the story is gonna concern itself with proof um to be fair he did say if i came back with proof would you let me back into the 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 the, the cool kids club um but i think i think there's proof enough in the helmet um i would add to it as well just this notion that this notion that we only really understand at the end of a season of the Mandalorian, you know, how well constructed it has been and how, um, sometimes the things where we say, well, that was, you know, that, that was barely an element that we discussed or we wondered why it was the case. For example, I think back to last week's episode, Hey, it's weird that they have this, um, you know, they, the armors sect that they have this, uh, you know, the Duncan area is rather shallow, but then it's also somehow immediately so deep that the rock croc can come get them. Um, and that was a concern you had pointed out last week. Coincidentally or not, they have chosen an area that indeed mimics the uh, little ledge there into the living waters beneath the mines of uh, Mandalore in that it's the exact same thing where a couple steps down, but one step too much, and it's hundreds of feet deep and big enough for mythosaurs and all of that. Yeah, I don't think they've set up the ruins of Mandalore and the mines here as a place to be repopulated right now, at least. Um, so that's something. And just back to the Purgle here, that Grogu has definitely seen them. And Peli asked if Grogu said his first word at the beginning of the episode. Did he say her name dave filoni's been asked you know when if grogu will talk and of course he's he's been coy with that uh i mean what if his first word was purgle oh i know the purgle those are creatures that do this you're saying i should get a purgle to take this to the mandalorians kid good idea I also feel like there's a cuteness factor to the word purgle that could be said in that cute Grogu way. Um, and then that could forever be, you know, like your your trivial pursuits. What is Grogu's first word? Purgle. Um, 
also just thinking ahead you know we know based on the scant remaining footage that there is from the the trailers for this season we know that there there will be um kind of the return of the the imperial remnant story uh dr pershing i, I believe there's also footage of was it whether it was construction or deconstruction uh, of uh, star destroyer on coruscant all, all that sort of stuff um i kind of marvel that it doesn't feel like we're headed there in any way and again i look back to the prior seasons where um you don't always appreciate the structure when you're going from beginning to end of the season first time viewing but you know wh- while i can't propose at this point well what is the easy connection to be made there you know it's just the way these episodes are written favreau really really has thought through how to you know how to make sure that we see a thing i.e look stuff is coming off of mando's belt with the spider droid um but then it's also clear that that's you know what are those things i don't know blaster and the other thing well when Bo reaches for the other thing and clicks on the dark saber we don't question how it got there um Similarly, whatever the moving parts are, whether it's piracy or whatever it might be to bring in that post-Empire uh, storyline, I'm looking forward to that as well. Matt, we're two episodes in. We're a quarter of the way through the season. We know Christopher Lloyd is involved somehow. Could he be the voice of the Mythosaur? That would be fun. That would be super fun. Um, we've talked before, you know, do you, in a production that initially hired Carl Weathers to be in latex and Carl Weathers was like, I'm just going to let them figure out that you don't get Carl Weathers to not see Carl Weathers. Similarly, you know, you don't get, I don't think you get, um, Christopher Lloyd to appear on camera and it not be clearly Christopher Lloyd, i.e. you don't put him in a ton of makeup. The flip side is, could you get him to be the voice of the mythosaur, the voice of the purgle, something like that, where it's a fun anecdote, but it's also not, you know, it's not particularly taxing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I would hope that he's playing an on-screen character just because we all love Christopher Lloyd. But if it is going to be voice only, uh, I think mythosaur is a good place to do it. And also, you know, like we don't, we don't know the capabilities of the mythosaur. Like, are they, uh, similar to whales are they highly intelligent and is there maybe unlike whales at least as far as we know is there maybe a telepathic communication um type thing where it could be more than christopher lloyd making christopher lloyd noises and actual dialogue um i'm gonna keep my fingers crossed for that and i'm gonna hope that christopher lloyd doesn't break our hearts and end up playing you know another former uh, imperial general on the run <laughs> are the mythosaur for sensitive What's changed here, obviously, Mandalore has lain in, in ruin, so... And how long has that been that they've... That, that, you know, how long was it since the destruction? So we don't have a definitive timeline on when the Empire uh, bombed it into oblivion. We've also never been told that there were other cities past Sindari. That was the only one we ever saw on a kind of look like a desert landscape and then you know inside the dome was obviously their civilization and there was always some 
you know, idea of, oh, all right, did they ruin their world and they had to retreat to uh, the domes because of, you know, some environmental issue. But, you know, and, and Bogotan says the wastes outside of our cities. But this idea here that, you know, with no one around, the ecological factor here, you know, now being down there and again, seated in the dialogue, I wonder what else, you know, the Alamites, the, the predators, the, the winged creature, uh, what else is down there when no one's around to disturb it, uh, that it would now be there, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the history of the Mandalorians layered on top of that, the, the plaque. Um, you know, the mention of Bo-Katan's father um, that, you know, we haven't mentioned her sister, Satine, just yet, but mentioned Bo-Katan's Jedi friends. We know, of course, already of Ahsoka, uh, but she's referring to Anakin Skywalker. She's referring to her almost uh, brother-in-law, Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's another Jedi uh, connected with the Purgle there, Ezra Bridger, uh, who, of course, has been cast for Ahsoka. Uh, whether or not we would see him sooner uh, is uh, just really speculation at this point. So I feel like implied in the story in this episode is... Um is an argument is an argument that maybe Bo-Katan is the better um, figurative wielder of the dark saber. We know that she literally has an easier time swinging it around and chopping stuff up. Um, but that, that perhaps she is in a better position to be the leader of all of Mandalore, uh, whatever that looks like minus uh, the death watch type folks and all of that. So but I think the thesis that's, always surrounded leadership is not the people who seek it, but the people that it finds. Din Djarin never had any desire to wield the dark saber was ready to give it to her. I yield. Nope. It doesn't work that way. Moff Gideon tells us the sword doesn't have the power. The story does. Okay. What happened to her? Everybody left her. She wanted to be alone. Why have you come back to bother me? And she gets swept in this now. Okay. If only she knew by episode's end, she'd see a mythosaur. Um, so now he's got the dark saber. Now, as a result of his quest, he's confirmed the existence of this thing. I think she's going to throw her support behind him. She's going to follow him. Is this her way? Well, that's a that's a compelling argument, and I would add to it, um, she clearly is, at least prior to seeing the Mythosaur, she clearly is secular in her views, where, uh, you know, and even looking down on kind of mm -hmm. the general 
sacred traditions of Mandalore, you know. It was theater. Indeed. Let alone, you know, very clearly, and since we've known her on, you know, in, in live action, looking down on the even more um, orthodox uh, views of, of the Death Watch that, that raised uh, Din Djarin and all of that. So kind of on the one hand, part of me wants to say, uh, let's go for a secular democracy. That makes a little bit more sense for all. Um, but there's also Star Wars that Pete, if you haven't noticed, does sometimes appreciate uh, kind of, you know, families ruling and the potential of family and, and things of that sort, uh, let alone, I don't know. I don't think that this show is a is a is an exploration on different forms of government. If anything, you know, perhaps shades of Favreau's own uh, journeys in faith and so forth. The notion that all the Mandalorians, regardless of whether they're on the secular Bo-Katan end or the quite sacred uh, end of uh, of Din Djarin, you know, the persecuted people, the people who the Empire tried to wipe out, and now perhaps coming together by embracing their traditions. Um, I think of Favreau's Jewish faith, I think of faith in general, and and embracing traditions, particularly in difficult times. So I think that you're on to something, Pete, that probably this, probably the last episode is not uh, them doing kind of a constitutional monarchy, and it's going to be the first, <laughs> the first elections to uh, Mandalorian Parliament, um, as opposed to, let's not forget, this is a knight in shining armor show. I, you know, I know it's got all the Star Wars stuff, but this is it's the Star Wars Knights of Old. Sword. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. Exactly. <laughs> you don't need to be, and that's the beauty part. And hence, like, oh, I'm not into Mandalorian anymore because I'm into super complex, dark, and or Star Wars. I don't like kids stuff. Well, why not? Okay, and you did it one point and and, you know, we talked prior to, you know, um, the podcast here. What continues to fascinate me about how this show is written is both the simplicity and the complexity simultaneously that, you know, you have such a minimalist story. What happens in this episode he goes to uh, another place. He gets a thing that's going to help him in the place he's going, gets stuck in the place he's going, needs to be rescued, gets rescued. They find the thing. OK, it's essentially a five or six beat story. All right. And, you know, Fabro makes it so much more compelling than that. You know, we we talk about. And, and we go through our notes as we recap this episode and the points at which it's super simple and other times where there's such loaded detail. I mean, Matt, that he sees that he, that they see, we see as the audience, the horn first and then the eye of the Mandalore or, or the mythosaur, excuse me. Um, the question I want to ask you, so he just finishes reciting the pledge and then disappears. He had taken everything off, but he still got his suit of armor on. Did he sink? And boy, did he sink quick <laughs> or was he pulled or grabbed? 
I think I kind of read it as he was grabbed. If the if this is a pool with one, two, three steps, and the fourth step is five hundred feet of water, um, not a cool move on Bo-Katan's part to not mention that. Um, I'd even go so far as to say I don't think she knew. I, I exactly. I don't think that she knew. I think that it's uh, she was there when she was a child. Yeah. You know, so, all right, here, you go down there. And who's to say, too, that the bombing didn't open things up? Yeah. Um, To me, just in terms of character intent, it's a little less impressive to be like, he took an extra step. He, He took a bad fall and then stumbled 200 feet into a inky black chasm versus fate was waiting there for him. Um, and the chosen and, aspect that it would have pulled him. Yeah, kind of you know your reverse. Um, uh, what's the uh, the what is it in King Arthur the 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 Lady of the Lake? Kind of like like a reverse <laughs> notion there that there was the the hand of the tentacle the whatever to pull him under. I think that's more satisfying than you know uh, he kind of stumbled going down the stairs. Um, so I hope that's the case. I think we'll know either way in the next episode on the way there Bo-Katan talking about Mandalorian discord and again you know these stories primarily through Clone Wars and then later Star Wars Rebels Um, but you know those Jedi that she fought alongside of and fighting against Darth Maul and Death Watch uh, pre Vizsla, okay, of course, related to the heavy infantry, Paz Vizsla, not quite sure how that reunion meeting might go down uh, between the two of them. But the fact that the armorer's helmet has horns to it that are distinctly like those that followed Darth Maul during one of the Mandalorian civil wars, the one that Django fed that Boba's uh, clone father uh, fought in seems to have been a separate Mandalorian civil war, which certainly tracks with this history that Bo-Katan brings up. You know, it's funny. Uh, It was only in last week's episode where I kind of fully appreciated, oh, the armorer is not just someone who, makes the armor for the people who like to wear armor like she's a craftsperson as well as a priestess um and i hadn't necessarily considered that cultural perspective until until last week's episode you know then add to it are those the horns are those horns meant to mimic those of the mythosaur because she's uh you know by virtue of being an armorer that she's particularly you know she's she's closer to the culture you know like is it part of the religious uh frock if you will that she would wear is it a story reference to to other aspects as as perhaps you're suggesting uh is it something that a pre-visualization person drew in pencil x number of years in 2018 and favreau was like that's cool let's go with that design and uh maybe has no origin beyond that or has no purpose beyond that, but could be, could be put into use in the future. Uh, certainly time will tell. 
Bunta Eve we'd seen from Moss Espa, and you mentioned before that there seems to be discussion that the Emperor didn't allow this celebration. We're in Moss Eisley. We know we're in Moss Eisley. That's where Pelly's, uh, you know, hangar is. And they're not pod racers. They're speeders. Uh, so has this now spread throughout Tatooine? We know that Ubuntu now lasts a week. Uh, and apparently the uh, really festive dressed uh, Jawas spend a lot of time in the cantina during that week. Yeah, I think that it's all it's all related to the new and wonderful freedoms under the Galactic Republic, letting you have your fun again and so forth. Um, so yeah, to me that all that all tracks. Everybody's you know everybody's in these classic most towns that are hives of scum and villainy. There's out there having a good time on Bunta Week. If only you had a craft that was faster than you knew what to do with around the time of pod racing um true although i hope i hope they don't do anything with that this season because i really like my mandalorian n1 starfighter uh lego set and i'd hate to i hate hate to lose that again just like we lost (laughs) mando's first ship um or i guess it's it's gotta go at least a season and change like the uh the razor crest right I would hope so. I mean, it's a very cool design. Um, I think, too, the show, I don't want to say tipped its hand, but we can look back now and say this show is not going to return to The Mandalorian doing, like, our original concept, which never was really there beyond the first episode, our original concept of guy does weekly bounty hunter adventures, therefore he needs his bounty hunter van, um... You know, as shocking as it was for the Razor Crest to be destroyed, we can now have a better understanding that, that among other things, he didn't need that ship anymore because he didn't need that space for that type of storytelling. Um, if anything, we're headed more towards, you know, space battles with a new sleek, fast thing with kind of, you know, Luke's X-Wing, but but the next generation, if you will, versus you know, a dumpy square Millennium Falcon that is not the fastest hunk of junk, just kind of more a hunk of junk. Um, so I feel like we're at the apex with this N1 Starfighter customized and all that. I feel like we're at the apex of that type of Star Wars vehicle. Uh, and I hope we stick with it because I'd love to see him zipping around um, as opposed to, you know, running out of gas again in the, uh, in the Razor Crest. Well, maybe some bad news on that front, Matt, you know, Lego turns things around more quickly because, Oh, Hey, we have these bricks and we can do this right here. But, uh, as far as the action figure line, uh, Hasbro takes a little longer and actually they have the the lead time through the internal designs when they're shared. Uh, and in their pipeline, which they've announced is the N one, Mandalorian Starfighter, uh, same way the Razor Crest was announced and then blown up during its okay. uh, crowdfunding stage. So uh, I I hope it's not a a repeat there, but I also think it would be kind of cool that over the course of this show he would have a couple different hero ships. Absolutely. Uh, 
not exactly a theory here exactly, but I just want to share an observation, which is for as much as we hear of production crises coming out of Marvel, um, it's worth considering that this show, The Mandalorian, A, because of the small writing staff, B, because of this John Favreau style of really having a sense not just of where things are headed, but I mean, would it be safe to say, Pete, that they ha- that the entire season is written before they film? They know what they're going to do. They know what they're looking for, right? Um, add to it also the stagecraft technology where you're doing a lot of your vi- visual effects ahead of time. Um, I feel like this is all rowing in the same direction in terms of the compact nature of the storytelling here. The fact that you don't have stories of you know, harried uh, VFX people that get changes at the last minute that indeed to be able to shoot, I don't know, Bo-Katan walking uh, on the surface toward the cave, you need to have committed to a cave design months earlier. You need to have built it in the computer weeks earlier. You need to have built your glassy floor bottom at the very least days earlier and it all works and then you shoot it and you say it's done nobody is allowed to have a light bulb moment where you go oh wait what if actually uh, it was a sunny planet not a you know not a cloudy planet like no it's already shot it's done and so forth so i think part of the stability through and through of this show it's that you have a writer who's direct writer who's writing with direction in mind you have a production which is ready to direct live action as much as possible VFX that are supporting that ahead of time. Uh, and that's, it's all feeding itself with the stability of the story through and through. Something to be said to having your own in-house effects company as well. Matt, uh, Pelly asks Dan Jarin, uh, if the huts are back, if he's there to take out Boba Fett, there remain rumors that the book of Boba Fett will get a second season. And that could certainly be part of it. Um, agree. I would put my space credits on the continuing adventures of the book of Boba Fett being in aspects of whether it's this season of Mandalorian next season Ahsoka, Skeleton Crew, if there's some sort of catch-all to lead towards the culminating thing, um, whether the culminating thing is on Disney+, Plus, whether the culminating thing is the next Star Wars movie. Um, I suppose it's all also up for grabs. I mean, for as much as we spent time in the last week kind of reflecting on what can we infer has worked and hasn't worked for the Star Trek universe and for the MCU in terms of the type of storytelling that they will be telling in the future and how that has differed from the past inference, the things that didn't work will not continue. Um, One doesn't really get the impression of that from Star Wars. I mean, I think we're completely done with Kenobi because it was a limited series, because up front we were told six episodes and that's it, because we kind of stopped when we did. You could do more, but it's not necessarily begging for more. I think similarly with Book of Boba Fett, if we get a second season, that'll mean that they have the clicks that show it was worth. it's worth doing another season. If five years from now there still is not Book of Boba Fett season two, I think we will be able to look back and say, 
those people who were complaining that there was all this Mandalorian stuff that happened in another show, guess what? The viewership did not indeed transfer over. Okay, no harm, no foul, but that'll be that that'll be the biggest reason to not do another season. It's so interesting to me that the book of Boba Fett through the lens of the pop culture public and then, you know, society at large is viewed as this like lesser thing when it's the bigger name character. It's, you know, it's Boba Fett, man. It's the allure of that. And that it's like, ah, I didn't watch it. And uh, do I need to just baffles me? I mean, I would certainly agree. I enjoyed the whole run. Uh, you know, I've talked about elements of the first three episodes, not not loving kind of the order in which it was told, but give me weird. Give me give me multiple times. Like, you know, everything doesn't need to be in an eight-episode eight season of Mandalorian. It'll only be this and it'll only be that. We can always count that Katie Sackhoff might have showed up briefly in the first two episodes that might not appear later but guess what she's gonna come in in the last two episodes to help fight the big evil at the end like keep it keep star wars weird man um and book of boba fett did that you know in terms of keeping star wars weird and unexpected book of boba fett did that better than kenobi i think maybe i like the kenobi series better don't get me wrong but in terms of in terms of part of star wars is what's the what is the next thing to make us feel like the first time you saw the cantina, you know, let things be unexpected. And, um, Pete, maybe I'm wrong. And we're going to get book of Boba Fett season two announced at the end of this season of Mandalorian, just like last time. Are we officially done with the IG 11 quest? I think so. And again, in this weird kind of backtrack nature, now I better understand why we needed the IG-11 story because ultimately it was putting, you know, we need somebody to fly Grogu to Bo-Katan. And that somebody has to be a droid, has to be an astromech, has to be R5 that we know Peli has. Like, I can now see the, the, the tiptoe better there. Um... I still feel like it's a little wandering in the first episode, so I wouldn't be completely surprised if there's some sort of return to that or some sort of, well, now that we've been introduced to the Anzellans, even though they said no to the IG unit, now there's something else that needs a fixin'. Um, maybe that was, again, we, we, we don't know what has been set up already because we haven't seen the setup uh, resolved. But I think we're done with IG-11. This is when I go back and re-listen over the summer and go, no, you had no idea that the best Star Wars story ever was going to be the tale of IG-11 when he was rebooted. And we all cried upon his return and he became the most beloved character ever, supplanting Luke Skywalker and everybody else. But sometimes I'm wrong. The great thing that this episode does that you mentioned could become a ride is kind of give Grogu his own little adventure. I mean, the first one, certainly, that we've seen. Um, and the fun that you have with that. And that this show training him now, hey, Mandalorian, and you have armor, and finding your way around the galaxy. Still a little 
scared at times as you know the discussion with bo katan that hey you need to show me the way um but uh it's cute and clever that that's been baked in now i'm a little less bullish on the notion that we are setting up kind of the continuing grogu chronicles um i again i could be wrong on that as well i do certainly agree however that it's it's interesting to think how to think how grogu's place in the story has shifted from essentially essentially a MacGuffin in the first season i mean an adorable one at that and one worth protecting but it really was like precious baby oh no there's trouble put him in a pod and kick the pod away fight 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 okay fight is over now he gets to be adorable again open the pod um and things of that sort now he is a character with more of his own uh identity and drive and you know frankly the ability to go from the spider pit all the way back up and to go get help and and so forth um that evolution is a really pleasing one to see Bo-Katan refers to Din Djarin to Grogu as his dad and then later to Din Djarin says that your kid came and got me even though he was the one that said hey get to Bo-Katan but okay he was being drained by this uh, crab, spider, edge of tomorrow alien. Um, and then that her line here that she finds it honestly adorable that uh, Din Djarin believes in these children's stories. Or maybe it's honorable and maybe like she could be Grogu's mom. Ooh, so you're proposing a little love triangle here. Um, that hadn't occurred to me before. I think that I have... Pete, that is a ship that now quickly has grown to my heart. I'm totally behind that for a variety of reasons. A, the farther we get from episode one, from chapter one, the lone guy on a lone trip in this you know cruel world where he's completely by himself... What's the antithesis of that? The antithesis of that is connection, relationship, family, all of that. Um, also, it would give us more Katie Sackhoff. Also, also it would give us um, kind of keeping her around in the ongoing story, whether it's Mandalorian, whether it's you know what we keep calling Star Avengers. Um, nothing wrong with having Katie Sackhoff. Nothing wrong with having Bo-Katan around to kick butt and um, and also just thinking of how this production works like it's also somebody else where you could be like ooh this week we're not doing the Pedro stuff we're not doing Pedro close-ups Pedro mask off so you know uh Latif Crowder you're gonna this is more stunt stuff you and Katie are gonna shoot all the Katie scenes where her helmet is lost and next week we'll shoot the Pedro stuff like it does in the ongoing adventures if this really is a show that is as open-ended as we hope and and it's not you know well we secretly know the greenlit season four is it um the more the merrier to add to the richness of the storytelling all right extend that antenna Pete, we start at Twitter where people were able to rate their thoughts on this episode. 
Um, and much like last week's Picard episode, not only high ratings, but nobody downvoting it on the lower end. So one uh, diamond, one gem, bad motivator got 0%. Two gems, post Boonta Eve Blues got 0%. Three gems, good spider web, uh, 13.6%. And then four gems, Wow Katan got 86.4%. Some of the replies here first uh, from our Bo Katan Pete, our captain, Noel Gardner at Noel Camille on Twitter. Great episode. Din finally got to Lake Minnetonka. I mean, the Mines of Mandalore. Didn't expect all the obstacles, and it was a uh, good thing that Bo-Katan was close. She saved him twice and can wield the Darksaber way better. By the way, how big was that mythosaur? When will Grogu speak? Any thoughts there, Pete? I mean, I think the Mythosaur is going to be on the largest and definitely bigger than a Rancor. Um, when will Grogu speak? I think, you know, it's got to be connected with this. Um, but I think it'll be this season as well. We're from JT Adkins. JTA is me. One of these days, it'll be Grogu riding that Mythosaur. Robot Gollum didn't stand a chance. We <laughs> headed towards our team being Bo, Din, and the kid. I'd be perfectly fine with that. This is the way. Next up, Spider-Ham Lincoln at TessLC139 says, Minds of Moria. Oops, Mandalore. Yes, Grogu is on a hero's journey. That uh, cyber eyeball creature, though. Hand me some pog soup. Our protagonist was nearly drained. Shipping Din and Bo-Katan? No. Alamites look like Morlocks. Underwater rescue. R5-D4 needs courage badly. Next, Pete. Uh, Bob Keeley at R. Keeley on Twitter. This episode was a lot of fun. Bo-Katan and Din working together was great. The pace of this episode was just right. Really liked this one. Uh, next, we hear from Sea Smoke Rider. That's Kylie G328 on Twitter. Great, uh, pardon me, fun episode, but Mando has been uh, taking a lot of uh, L's lately, losses, needing others to save him. Also, I'm gay, but the way Bo-Katan looks in that armor has me questioning everything. Next, Pete, we hear from at Snow Goggles, who says, Forgive me, this was still just good, not great. I'll always take any Star Wars I can get, though. Don't know if y'all are watching Bad Batch, but I'd put the last two episodes of each against uh, each other, and Bad Batch wins. It's a good time to be a fan. Uh, a reply there. James Sagacious said to that, uh, I've enjoyed Bad Batch more than most, it seems. And Snow Goggles replies and says, uh, I absolutely love it. Going to do a Clone Wars rewatch after Mando is done. Since our fantastic friends did the prequel tr uh, trilogy podcast where the Clone Wars isn't present, those movies are a missed opportunity for greatness. And certainly, Pete, reference there to our uh, our, our trip down the, the prequel trilogy path this past uh, winter. Next up, we hear from Rose Ferry at Anna Rose five eight four. I liked the longer though. Uh, I liked the longer though slower at times episode. Our Mandalorian is a bit crazed with his waters of Mandalore crusade, and I hope he gets his redemption. Some very interesting characters down there. On um, last but never least, Pete is James the Sagacious Big Kiln on Twitter. Not only was it great, but it somehow makes me like last week's episode even more. It does justice to uh, the Mandalore we got. Uh, in clones and rebels and Bo got her groove back ending up with an r5 unit is another nice head fake um i'd agree with all that that it's, it's always interesting to go back and see what did the previous episodes do that you didn't appreciate at the time because you didn't know where things were headed 
and the clickbait of, oh, with episode one, Mandalorian has lost his way again. And then, oh, episode two fixes all the things wrong with episode one. Like, give him an opportunity. To the email inbox we go, Pete, and we heard uh, from Elias, who says, Hey guys, uh, really great to have The Mandalorian back, and I'm really looking forward to your coverage of the show. Just finished listening to your recap of the season premiere and wanted to share a small detail from the episode. Kalevala is actually the name of the Finnish national epic. It depicts the creation of the world and has a standout character called Vinyamoyen, I probably got that wrong, uh, who uh, sings his opponents to a swamp. Kalevala also inspired Tolkien in creating Lord of the Rings. I wonder if we will see any other Finland-inspired things in future episode. Cheers, Pete, that from Elias. I had read of that connection. Um, I didn't think worth mentioning last week. Interesting about the songs there. Uh, next, Pete, we hear from Steve Adams, who says, I love this week's episode. Peli Motto was fun at the beginning, and it was cool to see R5-D4 back in action. I had no real complaints with this episode, other than some of the shots in the mines were too dark. I know it's underground, but there could have been a little less shading. A minor complaint, though. I'm glad we got Bo-Katan back so soon. This is shaping up to be her story also. She is so insistent that the living waters are nothing special. I think, though, that her f- crisis of faith... Uh, In her crisis of faith, she has forgotten that even though the waters themselves may be nothing special, what they represent is. This is a defeated woman who can see no hope in her future. In her belief that the waters can do nothing for her, she fails to see that the fact that the waters are still there is a sign that all may may not be lost for Mandalore. Indeed, she herself may not be as lost as she thinks she is. I really like that the writers are giving us a look into the role of faith and tradition in life. I'm hopeful that Bo-Katan will find her faith again, and that she will once again become a leader among her people. Until next time, stay fantastic. That's from Steve Adams. Thanks, Steve. And I think, too, you know, the idea that she is a princess and that we would talk about a Din Djarin Bo-Katan relationship romantically that could be the third pillar behind the Darksaber and the Mythosaur to really unite all Mandalorians. With that, Pete, let's now hear from Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with a little feedback for The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 2. Well, this episode surely made Bogatan lift her behind from the cold stone throne and get her into action. Talking about behinds, I do find the Mandalorian Din Djarin a little anal about his creed and following that, well, where did it bring him? I think Bogatan's vision on it is much more realistic. Actually, I find Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, a little bit fanatic about this and I don't like people who have really fanatic and not open-minded visions. We just had this big dragon crocodile at the Mandalorian initiation and now we get again such a big beast, the Mitosaur and as said in my previous feedback uh, about the previous episode, it all reminded me also a bit of the great dragon 
in the book of Boba Fett. So they really should stop with these big, big creatures and think of something new. Okay, this all sounds quite critical. Nevertheless, I surely would give this episode an A-. minus. So I did like it. And of course, the very best was seeing Pelimoto back. Always a guarantee for some humor in this sometimes a little bit heavy series. And that mainly comes by the demeanor of the Mandalorian. Okay, that will be all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Interesting thoughts there, Pete. I would propose to Fred that we can now look back and see that the that the crocodile type creature um, was meant to echo, or rather, should I say it this way? It was foreshadowing for the mythosaur being in a similar situation. Um, perhaps one could even speculate: Have they chosen? this planet with its crocodile species because it's somewhat evocative i I don't think they were actually sticking the young guy there to to be to be so close to one but maybe there kind of was a a cultural echo there but i do think from a writerly perspective uh the crocodile attack can now presage the appearance of the mythosaur star wars has always had these larger creatures uh banthas and rancors and sarlaccs and all this so it it fits within the world and you know this one having such legendary significance i think it was too good to resist and had always been part of the plan now we're gonna have to see what they do with it Pete, certainly so fortunate to have as part of our podcasting plan, those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, our eternal thanks that we remain listener supported. Yes, 10 years now, Matt, into this endeavor and all sorts of celebrations coming forthwith, but cannot do it without the good people at patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door. All sorts of levels to choose from after that can't contribute right now get yourself over to apple podcast leave us a rating leave us a review to any one of our 33 podcast feeds well pete certainly the podcast adventure continuing how can people be in touch with you you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 12,802 followers can't be wrong well, I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost. Do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the P and the H. All one word. Like it today. Pete, looking ahead, tomorrow we'll be talking Picard episode 304, a.k.a. part four of the third season. Really looking forward to that conversation. And then barring any sort of, you know, breaking news in the pop culture landscape, we'll be back next Saturday, Star Wars Saturday, to talk the next chapter of The Mandalorian. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. You know, I just don't sit around here all day and work. I'm very popular. 